0: my pleasure today to introduce our speaker, Dr. Elizabeth-Anne Boren from the Worth Library. Um, Elizabeth-Anne has been librarian there for a number of years now. She's the author of uh, a plethora of articles on the history of ideas, libraries and universities in the early modern period. And importantly, she's the Irish member of the International Commission for the History of Universities her three-volume edition, uh, to which we're all looking forward, of the correspondence of James Usher, the controversial Archbishop of Armagh, from 1625 to 56, is due to be published in 2013 by the Irish Manuscripts Commission. Um, I just remind you, as I did with the last lectures, that um, the speaker has very kindly agreed to be recorded uh, for this uh, lecture. So um, if anybody asks questions at the end or that, and they don't want to be part of the eventual podcast, if they please just let me know at the end of the lecture. So without any more ado, I hand you over to Dr. Borno.
1: I'd like to begin by thanking Siobhan Fitzpatrick and the Academy more generally for organizing this series of lectures. I'm delighted to be here to talk to you about Edward Worth, and his scientific collections and you see a portrait of them here. Edward Worth, 1678-1733 is a very enigmatic figure. We know that he was a son of John Worth, the Dean of St. Patrick's and a grandson of Bishop Edward Worth of Killaloo. We know that he was educated in Merton College in the early 1690s to his undergraduate there and went on to Leiden to do his MD and that was par for the course. Leiden was one of the foremost medical faculties in Europe at the time While at Leiden, he was elected a fellow of the Royal Society in 1699 and in 1701 he got his degree in Utrecht, came back to Dublin, set up a practice we think in Warburg Street and after that it's very sketchy or even more sketchy. We know he was elected president of the Royal College of Physicians on two separate occasions and that he was fined for non-attendance and there's a suggestion that he might have been ill for the last 10 years of his life and beyond that we have very little to go on he left no personal archive there's no uh, archive of his correspondence he did however leave his library which is located in dr Stevens hospital in 1723 worth had decided to leave his collection to, of circa 4400 books to the hospital And I think he did this for a number of reasons. He was a friend of the Stevens family, he was a trustee of the hospital and also part of the collection would have been of immediate benefit to the surgeon and the physician there, given Worth's own professional medical interests. In any event, he left his books and provided money for the bookcases that you see in this picture to be used by the surgeon, the physician and the chaplain of the said hospital. The Worth Library is noteworthy for a number of things. Um, It's a library in an incredible state of preservation, uh, one which is comprised of fine bindings and rare printings. worth was very much a connoisseur collector. Now, unlike most Irish libraries of the time, it's very strong on history of medicine and history of science and very weak on theology. Normally the opposite is the case today I want to focus on his scientific collections, which are very uh, numerous indeed. And with that in mind, I constructed a database of circa 530 items in in 630 volumes. And I'm just going to give you a sort of run through of what he has in different areas of his collection. Now, we know part of his collection was inherited from his father, John Worth. And John Worth was interested in science himself. He was a founding member of the Dublin Philosophical Society. And he evidently had a keen interest in the works of Robert Boyle, collecting no less than 12 works. And Edward Worth himself uh, went on to collect a number of works by Boyle as well. So they were both interested in in the works of Robert Boyle. And actually, uh, last year, we had an event, a Boyle seminar, to mark the 350th anniversary of the Skeptical Chemist. And I'm delighted to say that Professor Michael Hunter, who's a foremost Boyle expert, donated his digital archive of all the Boyle material in the Royal Society to the Worth Library. So that's a really great archive to have for anybody interested in the history of science. So Edward Worth was clearly interested in the works of Robert Boyle. He was less entranced by works that John Worth liked, such as the works of René Descartes. And all the Cartesian works in the library tend to belong to John Worth. In all, 70 scientific items um, belonged to John Worth, and that makes up around 13% of the entire scientific collection in the Worth Library. Now tracking how Edward Worth developed his collection between the date of his father's death in 1688, when Edward was just 10 years old, um, to the mid-1720s is very difficult because we don't really have anything to go on. We do, however, for the period 1723 to 1733, have 57 book auction and sales catalogues which he left us, and that makes it very interesting to see how he developed his collection over that period. They shed valuable light on the direction Worth's book collecting took after his uncle William Worth's death in 1721. His uncle had left him a bequest in 1721, and that would have added to his book buying ability. Some of these catalogues are humdrum affairs. They either lack a title page or they're partial in nature, so it's difficult to know which sales they're talking about or even which country they're they're coming from. Some of them um, are complete, and they can tell us quite a lot about what was available in either Dublin or London in that period. And there's also a small group, um, what one might call an elite group, which represent the cream of the bibliographical crop in the early 18th century. Worth was collecting at a really interesting time in the 1720s. It was after the Mississippi bubble, the South Sea bubble. There had been an economic crash. So a lot of big libraries were coming on the market. And some of these included the collections of Jean-Baptiste Colbert, who was Louis XIV's uh, finance minister, Louis-Henri de Lomé Comte de Brienne, uh, the collection of Goswin who who is an Amsterdam merchant, and the collection of Samuel Hulse. A variety of markings in all these catalogues show us books bought by Worth and also books considered by Worth to be worthy of buying. Those marked by a price are invariably bought by him, but sometimes he just marks a dash. And the ones that he marks with the dash, he, does, he buys some of them, but not all. And that, that might be for a variety of reasons. He might have changed his mind, he might have been outbid. Um, some of them he notices that he has the, the same edition or a different edition of the same work. Equally, as his comment on one of them, a catalogue of choice physic books um, of an eminent physician deceased, which was sold at uh, Dick's Coffee House in Skinner's Row on the 2nd of April, 1731, is anything to go by, Worth could uh, be a hard bargainer. He has, if cheaper, against Fontenelle's history of the Académie de Science, and it arrived in his library, so it looks likely that he haggled and got the book. An important example of a catalogue being marked, and some, but not all books, um, being bought in Wurth's catalogue of the library of Nicholas Hartsoeker, uh, 1656 to 1725. Uh, Hartsoeker was a Dutch mathematician and physicist. He had been taught by Anthony van Leeuwenhoek, um, who taught him optics, and Wirth collects books by Leeuwenhoek. He also collects books by uh, Christian Huygens, who also taught Hartsoeker. Hartsoeker went on to develop instruments for the Parisian observatory he became a member of the French and Prussian academies of science academy of science and i think really given Hartsoeker's professional interests this was a very important library collection to come on the market for worth because worth was interested in the same things particularly the scientific instruments part of this collection the collection came on the market in 1727 at the Hague and it was as i say of vital interest to worth there are only two texts that are marked by Price in this catalogue, but there are numerous ones marked by Dash, and Worth certainly bought some of these. He added to his collection the 1617 Muller edition of the works of Copernicus, uh, Johannes Abelius's Epistolae IV, of, uh, published at Gdansk in 1654, and Huygens' Horologium Musculatorium, published at Paris in 1673. It seems likely that he also added this book, The Selenographia, which is an incredibly beautiful book about the moon, published by Johannes Sivellius in Gdansk in 1647, and um, he also marks this same work in another catalogue of Amsterdam in 1626, but it looks likely that he got it from Heartsoaker. Worth published a number of scientific works from the library, or purchased I should say, a number of scientific works from the library of Louis-Henri Lomeny Comte de Brienne. Now undoubtedly his most remarkable purchase from this collection was his 13-volume set of the works of Ulysses Aldrovandi, 1522 to 1605, and this has the famous Brienne coat of arms. This is an example of the Brienne coat of arms with a woman in a wash tub at the top of it, which is a giveaway that it's a Brienne coat of arms, and we can get back to why that might be. She refers to the fairy mellus, and we talked about that in the question time maybe and this is just an illustration from one of the the volumes on monsters from the Aldrovandi. Now this was a deluxe set certainly, um, but there was also a good philosophical reason for buying the set by Aldrovandi. Aldrovandi was responsible for establishing the first public scientific library, and he's sometimes dismissed as a writer who fits into the emblematic 16th century um, history of science worldview. And certainly he was not averse to referring to mythical beasts, i.e. As what you see here, among his zoological specimens. But the sheer scale of his work ensured that his natural history collection provided the basis for the first public natural history museum in Bologna in 1547. So Aldrovandri's huge work provided what one might call an overarching guide to classification for the natural sciences. Just as he sought to preserve specimens in his museum, so too in his printed works. He placed added emphasis on illustrations, and it's very, uh, very well illustrated, as a further teaching age. His work influenced later Bolognese scientists such as Domenico Guglielmini and Giuseppe Monti, and their works are likewise collected by works. Also from the Brienne sale, Uh, Worth bought Francis Willoughby's De Historia Piscium, which had been published by the Royal Society at Oxford in 1686. This is a truly fantastic work. It's got 187 uh, leaves of plates, and it meant that it was an extremely Expensive work to produce. In fact, it nearly bankrupted the Royal Society. And it was only for Edmund Halley, who was the editor of the first edition of the Principia, really pushing the Royal Society to publish the Principia that they actually agreed to it because they were so uh, worried about their previous uh, outing in, in publishing. This isn't the only work published by the Royal Society that Worth uh, buys, not by a long shot. Um, he also had the posthumous works of Robert Hooke. Which had been printed at London in 1705 and was dedicated to Newton, not by Hooke, Cook, had died in 1703, and I think he probably would have been revolving in his grave at the idea of a dedication to Newton. The Bibliotheca of which is a three volume catalogue of the library of the Dutch uh, merchant of Goswain Eulenbroek, came on the market in 1729, and it provided Worth with a treasure trove indeed, because Eulenbrook was a connoisseur collector like himself. Like many catalogues, Eulenbrook's catalogue is divided by size, so you have folio, quarto, octavo, duodecimo, and also by subject, but very few catalogues were divided into the level or you know, that had the level of description of subject that you find in the Eulenbrook catalogue. For the purposes today, the two most important sections were classes three, Medicina et Historia Naturalis, and classes four, Philosophia et Mathematica. And they subdivide, medicine and natural history, subdivide into ancient and Arabic medicine and their commentators, recent medicine, natural history, general museum, animals, agriculture, plants, minerals, fossils, stones, precious stones, chemistry and distillation. And by the time they got to the second volume, Dealing with the quarters, they'd added more fields. So you have horticulture being added. Philosophy and mathematics is a bit more stable; they, they don't tend to change that too much. Um, in the folio uh, volume, you have philosophical writings, mathematical writings, astronomy, waters, rivers, music, and with in the second volume, you have mechanics and optics being added as further subdivisions. This subject division is important because it reminds us of the poorest divisions between medicine and natural history, but also between the different areas of natural philosophy and natural history. And I think it's also important because it points to the importance of Eulenbrook's collection for Worth. Eulenbrook had a deep interest in all things scientific and that's what made his collection so interesting to Worth. Worth certainly bought a number of works from the Eulenbrook collection which fitted in very well with the scientific library. He bought the Royal Museum of Christian V of Denmark, which was printed at Copenhagen in 1696, as well as a book on rare plants in the garden of the Villa Farnesina in Rome, printed at Rome in 1625. He extended the French part of his science collection by adding the Harmonicorum of Marin Marcin, par 1648, and a collection of mathematical and physical works published by members of the Académie des Sciences, as well as the history of the Academy, published in 1698. Undoubtedly, one of, the most, one of the most important works that Worth bought from the Oelenbrookiana was his copy of Tycho Brahe, the Danish astronomer's work, Astronomia, Progen Progenimismata, published at Uraniborg in 1610. From the three-volume auction catalogue of the Samuel Hulst collection, which took place at the Hague in 1730, Wirth bought an array of items in all subjects, especially scientific. Indeed, it is significant that in the pages of the second volume, which deal with the quartos, and the third volume with the octavos, the only pages that are cut so that he could read them are the books on science and medicine. Here purchased Aldine copies of Aristotle's De Natura Animalium and De Chilo, along with a few other works on physics by Francesco Petrisi and the rather more up-to-date Vitali Giordano's Fundamentum Doctrina Motus Gravium, published at Rome in 1688, and Georg Ernest Stahl's fundamental Chimia, published in Nuremberg in 1723. Twenty one of the catalogues had been printed in London and relayed what was on offer there. Here the individual collections were coming on the market, such as those of Charles Killigrew and Bartholomew Beale whose books were sold in December 1725. And from these two collections, Worth was able to track down and buy books such as Borelli's History of the Eruption of Mount Etna in 1699 and Joseph Christoph Sturms' Collegium Experimentale, published at Nuremberg in 1676, the latter being work on experimental physics. Other individual collections, such as William the Secretary Monsieur Delon, were also sold at London, but some collections were less useful to Worth. If the individual collector wasn't interested in science, then obviously Worth wasn't going to find useful items for his collection, so a lot depended on individual taste of collectors. Worth also did not entirely neglect the local book trade in Dublin, he's nine catalogues in all, but the very fact that you have so few Dublin printings in the Worth library indicated his attitude to what was coming out in Dublin. However, as the catalogue of books newly arrived from England, Holland and France, which Smith & Bruce published in 1726 reminds us, the Dublin book trade was heavily dependent on imports. From this catalogue, Worth bought only one pseudo-scientific work, Matthias Hiller's Hierophytikon, published at Leiden in 1725. He marked a number of works in the catalogue of the Dublin bookseller Richard Norris, a uh, catalogue that came out in 1729, but only purchased one, John Bainbridge's Canicularia, which had been uh, published in 1648, I think. Um, that was a book on Sirius, the dog star. Many of the catalogues available in Dublin too closely modelled that of John Nicholson's. Nicholson had been a rector at Donna in Donegal. He was very strong on theology, but hardly any um, natural history or natural philosophy. These catalogues are a treasure trove in themselves as they point to how Worth developed his library and what was available to the discerning collector in early 18th century Dublin. Clearly a number of trends emerge. Worth as a connoisseur collector, avidly tracking down rare printings and fine bindings. But lest we focus too much on the outside of the book, it is clear that Worth was also thinking in terms of content and searching for specific authors, authors who he marks again and again, and I'm talking about people like John Ray, um, Robert Hooke, Francis Willoughby, all good fellows of the Royal Society. The catalogues and his collections also tell us something more. We don't have all of them, because we can see in some of the books, and some of the annotations in the World Library, that some of them came from the Bibliotheca Colbertina, and he certainly didn't have a copy of the 1729 sale of the books by Jean, of Jean-Baptiste Colbert. The relatively low figure of books marked uh, scientific books marked in all 57 collections, 113 in all, Suggest something even more thought provoking. We, we should be wary of concentrating too much on the period 1723 to 33 simply because we have evidence to show the development of the collection at that stage. It seems likely that Worth had been continuously adding to his scientific collection throughout his life. I've mentioned some of the more upmarket books which he bought from his various collections, and certainly some of these might have been bought as much for the subject matter as for their outer covering, or for both indeed but it is striking in a library so noted for its deluxe bindings that the bindings on his scientific collection in the main tend to be trade bindings, the lower end of the scale. They're very good trade bindings, but they're still trade bindings as opposed to gilt uh, bindings. It is, I think, safe to assume that Worth was steadily buying books while at Merton, Leiden and back in Dublin before his uncle so conveniently left him money in his will. The acquisition of George Starkey's, uh, collection of medieval works um, of alchemy, uh, which came out in the Netherlands, a Dutch copy, Worth by it in Dutch, must surely date to the time when Worth was in Leiden. It forms part of a subset of works on alchemy which can be investigated on the alchemy and chemistry at the Worth Library website. Uh, it's another web exhibition. Now, this is a subject division of the entire scientific collection, and you can see at the base the subjects of natural philosophy, then you're heading into natural history. This long grey bar, the main bar, composite, that relates to philosophy of science but also to works of composite nature and they tend in the main to be more natural historical rather than natural philosophical. So you'll have ornithology and zoology or uh, zoology and botany mixed in together in one volume and that's where they've gone into the composite section there. In the main though, when we look at the overall collection, natural philosophy accounts for 58% and natural, uh, natural history for 42%. This strong showing of natural philosophy, particularly in the areas, as you can see, of astronomy and mathematics, is hardly surprising given that these were areas which were covered as part of the undergraduate curriculum. In mathematics, Worth would have been familiar with the works of... John Kersey, whose elements of algebra, which had been pre- printed in 1673 at London, was still being used as a text in early 1690s Oxford. Um, John Keel's course of lectures at Balliol College, Oxford, dating from 1699 to 1700, i.e. around eight years after work arrived in Merton, gives us some indication of the type of mathematical instruction on offer at Oxford in 1690s, It includes not only arithmetic, geometry, algebra, and trigonometry, but also comprised a combination of both theoretical and practical mathematics, and these trends are reflected in Worth's own mathematical collection. Mordecai Feingold, uh, the professor in the history of science, in Caltech reminds us that 1690s Oxford witnessed a flowering of mathematical studies. You have the presence of the civilian professor of geometry, John Wallace. You have the arrival in 1692 of David Gregory, who was appointed to the civilian professorship of astronomy, and 1692 is, by the way, when Worth also arrived in Oxford. Astronomy like its sister discipline was also taught as part of the undergraduate curriculum in the later years. Where astronomy collection includes works by every famous, astro- every famous astronomer from ancient times upwards. And we can see in this place, uh, some of them, you have Galileo and Hevelius on the left and they're holding on to telescopes. Uh, then in the centre you have Hipparchus, who's an ancient uh, astronomer. Then you have Tycho Brahe, Copernicus and Ptolemy and they have their own individual um, images of their um, understanding of the solar system. And this comes from Jan Lutz's Astronomic Inst- Institutio. More information on Wirth's absolutely extraordinary astronomical collection can be found on the Astronomy at the Worth Library website. And by the way, any of the Wirt Library websites, they're all under the Exhibitions tab. So if you go to the Edward Wirt Library website, you can find all the exhibitions there. Once, once I do them, they're up and that's it. We can see from the Subject Division slide that Words' purchase of Aldrovandi's Natural History fits neatly into the overall scope of his collection, which is clearly interested in all areas of natural history, especially botany, which you can see in the the dark grey bar, or the green bar. The dominance of botany is no accident, and should be seen in the context of pharmaceutical works. Botany was, after all, one of those porous areas between natural history and medicine, which any self-respecting medical practitioner needed to know. Early modern physicians played a fundamental role in the rise of botanical studies and more generally natural history in the early modern period. We see this in the papers of the Royal Society and in the papers of the Dublin Philosophical Society, where natural history accounts for a dominant subsection of all the experiments and reports. And Worth is a very good example of this. When he went to Leiden... Uh, He would have been taught natural sciences, and Leiden, following the model of the University of Padua, had set up a botanical garden there in 1593. Back in Dublin, Robert, Robert Huntingdon, the provost of Trinity College, Dublin, had set up a physic garden in 1687. And it seems likely that beyond these institutional physic gardens, doctors like work would have had their own garden as well. Throughout the 16th century, physicians in particular have played a prominent role in the investigation of botanical specimens, and it is striking the worth has, has copies of works by all the leading practitioners, Otto Brunfels, Leonard Fuchs, Pietro Andrea Mattioli, Guillaume Rondelet, Francisco Hernandez, uh, Rembert Dodens, Ulysses Aldrovandi, who I mentioned, Andrea Cesar Pino, Carlos Clusius, Matthias de Lobel, and Caspar Bauhin. Many of these works are found in folio formats in the Worth Library. These were clearly expensive items to produce as they included a host of illustrations. We see here Leonard Fuchs's famous work of 1542. Fuchs was particularly adamant about the need for new illustrations, i.e. not reusing copies, and his text included not only pictures of the plants themselves, but also of his team of illustrators and engravers. In this we see Heinrichs Fulmauer and Albertus Meyer, who were the illustrators and the engraver with Vitus Rudolfus Spechlin. Wirth had a phenomenal collection of botanical works, early modern botanical works, and this will be the theme of next year's online exhibition. The driving force behind such works was a search for plants that would be of medicinal value. A search that was given added impetus with the rise of new diseases such as syphilis. And this in turn led to an interest in printing books about plants and animals of the New World. And an example of this is the works copy of Francisco Hernandez's Nova Plantarum Animalium et Mineralium Mexicanorum Historia, which came out in Rome in 1651. Hernandez was a Spanish physician who had been sent to the New World by Philip II. Um, And the resulting work was published under the auspices of Philip IV, and that's on the left-hand slide at the top, you can see the royal coat of arms of Philip uh, IV. This was the work that incorporated illustrations and descriptions of plants and animals from the New World, giving their native and Latin names. It was a huge undertaking, and despite official backing, took a long time to come to fruition. And it was finally published due to the cooperation of a team of editors and correspondents who sought to substantiate Hernandez's uh, observations. And I think that was no accident because much of the work on natural history of this period was the result of scientific correspo- scientists corresponding with each other, sharing their observations and publishing them in various scientific journals which were likewise collected by Worth. Worth didn't just collect the famous works of the 16th century, but was also added to extend his collection into the regional natural histories of the 17th and 18th century. Um, there's been relatively little, but there had been relatively little work done on Irish botanical studies at this period, but he would have benefited from uh, Gideon Bonifair's 1690s results that had been incorporated into Leonard Plukenet's phytographie and Worth has a 1720 uh, copy of the Phytographies in the in the Opera Omnia of Plukenet. Uh, This was fortunate because Worth's copy of John Ray's famous synopsis methodica Stirpium Britannicarum in 1690, the first edition, has relatively little on botanical studies in Ireland. Worth was therefore clearly interested in the zoological works being printed by members of the Royal Society, by people like John Ray, Martin Lister, and Willoughby. But he didn't limit himself to just authors of the Royal Society. He included some of the most famous books on animals and birds, such as Pierre Bellon's. Uh, Histoire de la Nature de Oiseaux, which was published at Paris in 1555, and that's the current Library Worth Book of the Month. I think in this interest, one of the um, influences on him might have been the Ashmolean Museum. It certainly opened in 1683, so he might have, you know, had an added interest in natural history due to that, and it's hard to say. One of the meeting points between natural history, natural philosophy and medicine was chemistry, and by chemistry I mean that overarching term that includes both alchemy and chemistry. It's very hard to distinguish the two at this stage. Worth had a comprehensive collection of chemical texts, and again, if you're interested in this, do please have a look at the Alchemy and Chemistry website, because that covers that part of the collection. Widely collected some of the earlier alchemical collections, such as Elias Ashmole of the Ashmolean Museum, um, his Theatrum uh, Britannic Carum, which came out in London 1652, which was a compilation of medieval alchemical texts. It appears that worth real interest within the later 17th and early 18th century chemical textbooks, such as Nicayus Lefebvre's uh, A Complete Body of Chemistry, which was published at London 1670. And we see here an illustration from this book showing calcination of antimony by the sun. Wirt seems to have been particularly interested in how chemistry was taught in the universities of England, the Netherlands and Germany. His library includes textbooks which show us what was being taught not only at Oxford, Leiden and Utrecht, uh, universities that he had some experience of, but also Leipzig, Wittenberg, Halle and Jena and indeed at the popular lecturing courses at London, experimental lecturing courses in in late 17th, early 18th century London. And he likewise collected chemical works emanating from the European courts, the early modern European courts, where you get experimental chemists uh, increasingly being employed as state officials. It is clear that the overarching philosophy of science guiding Worth's choices was a strong adherence to Newtonianism and it is for this reason that the annual online exhibition at the Worth Library, which I'm launching now, as in today, is on the theme, Newton at the Worth Library, and we see here the homepage. Um, And I'd like to thank Maria McGarry of WebWorks for the design of the website. I hope you'll explore it after the lecture. Um, The Royal Arch Academy has kindly made available two laptops there so you can play around with it or play around with it on your own computers at home. As you can see, the website is divided into a discussion of Newton's own works, um, which were owned by Worth, and the various commentaries and interpretations on the Principia and the optics which he likewise collected. And in conjunction with this, there is a section on the various debates which uh, Newton engaged in with Robert Hooke and Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz and also how members of the Royal Society defended his experiments uh, in the Royal Society. Edward Worth's loyalty to Newtonianism is made strikingly apparent by the fact that he collected not one but two copies of each of Newton's major works, a second and third edition, um, of, uh, second and third edition of the Principia, the first English and Latin editions of the Optics, and some of these are on display in the Worth Library, and we have opened days tomorrow and Friday if you want to come down and have a look at them. Um, a first edition of the Arithmetica Universalis, and on the right, a 1732 Leiden edition. And also, finally, the posthumous publication of his Chronology of Ancient Kingdoms Amended. This one on the right is by, I called Arthur Bedford, and it's a reply, a very um, um, turgid reply to the Chronology of Ancient Kingdoms. In addition, Worth also collected a host of commentaries which sought to explain Newton's findings in the Principia and replicate his experiments in the optics. As the reading Newton section of the website demonstrates, Worth collected the vast majority of the major commentators, uh, Newtonian commentators, of his day, or text by them, rather. Worth was clearly trying to collect copies of the Principia, and he may have been foiled in the search for a first edition because the 1687 first edition was very difficult to get. Um, they only published three to four hundred copies. So by the time Worth would have been collecting, seriously collecting, um, it was probably impossible to track down. As the title page of Worth's third or his second edition of 1713 suggests, there were however other reasons why he might have targeted this more readily available work. First of all, it had been edited and extended to include new material, and among the new material was the famous General Scolium, in which Newton went beyond um, mathematics and physics to argue that the universe could not have have come into being, quote, without the design and dominion of an intelligent and powerful being. And he framed his analysis of the attributes of God by declaring that, and I quote again, Newton, to treat of God from phenomena is certainly a part of natural philosophy. We should also remember that it also took time for the Principia to make its mark. The difficulties associated with reading the text are well known. There's a famous story of two Cambridge undergraduates seeing Newton passing by and saying, there's the man who wrote the book nobody can read. So it did take a long time for the Principia to kind of percolate down through. Those who did devote their attention to the text, you know, high-powered mathematicians, were anxious that a new edition come out because they'd noticed some typographical areas and some other areas uh, in it. Newton himself was also thinking about a second edition fairly early on. We have his annotated, uh, well, we, not the worst library, but Trinity College, Cambridge, has his annotated copy of its first edition, and you can see that he's you know, thinking of changes relatively soon after 1687. Worth's copy of the third edition of the Principia contains his brief note on Newton's death on the frontispiece portrait of the edition. And the very fact that Worth actually uh, did this is noteworthy because Worth was not given to annotating his books. The 1626 edition had been ed- uh, edited by a chap called Henry Pemberton. Uh, Pemberton was, like Worth, a physician uh, by profession, a mathematician by avocation, unquote. Why Newton appointed Pemberton rather than a better-known mathematician is unclear. Um, I think he might have felt that Pemberton was an an easier editor to get on with. The editor of the second edition, Roger Coates, had brought in quite a lot of changes and Newton was not terribly open to to too many changes. In any event, the third edition allowed Newton to add further material which he had been preparing in the late 1710s. And he also added the famous Leibniz scholium in Book 2, Section 2. Uh, Here, Newton deliberately claimed the invention of the calculus, seeking to continue the debate with Leibniz, even though Leibniz had been dead nearly 10 years. Given that the vast majority um, of the Principia eschewed Newton's new analysis and instead depended on geometrical proof, it was a tough argument for Newton to make. And if you want to learn more about the Newton and Leibniz debate, um, you, you find a page on the website that deals with it. Worth might not have been able to track down a first edition of the Principia, but he was far more fortunate with the Optics, which was published at London in 1704. Based on Newton's experiments in the 1670s and 1680s, the Optics proved to be a far more accessible text, and, his man, and its many experiments were replicated again and again by key Newtonians such as John Theophilus de Zagliure. Um, de Zaglure was uh, the curator of experiments in the Royal Society. He was also a lecture in London, he had a very popular lecturing course, and Worth had some of these popular lecturing textbooks. Uh, we see on the left, the there's a system of experimental philosophy, and um, the textbook by Humphrey Ditton on the right was, again, one of, part of this experimental philosophical lecturing courses in London. Worth's second edition of the optics, which was translated into Latin in 1706, also helped to spread Newton's ideas on the continent, Latin being the lingua franca. Now, undoubtedly, these two works were the principal texts by Newton, but Wirth also collected two editions of Newton's Arithmetica Universalis, the first edition printed at Cambridge in 1707, and Willem Esgravesan's 1732 Leiden edition. This was perhaps Newton's least fav- favourite work, and he didn't even put his name on the title page of the 1707 edition. His distaste for it may have been connected with the fact that he felt that he had been forced to write it in order to gain, a seat, gain his colleagues' support in the 1705 uh, parliamentary election. So he really was trying to distance himself from it. And I think the driving force behind the 1707 edition was a chap called William Whiston, who was one of Newton's most uh, fervent disciples. The resulting work was a strange combination of fairly basic mathematical uh, and material which actually accounted for its popularity, um, and also some of Newton's mathematical insights, which drew the attention of scholars like Willemus And It became a standard text in Britain, uh, particularly, I suppose, after 1728, when there was an English translation, but it never really took off on the continent. A far more controversial work was Newton's Chronology of the Ancient Kingdoms Amended, which was published posthumously in 1728. Newton had been loath to publish his views on this, as he was afraid that his anti-Trinitarian views might become public. And certainly Church of England clergymen reacted strongly to the work, and that's the Arthur Bedford text that I showed you earlier. It's difficult to know where words stood on this. He may just have collected chronology because he wanted to have all of Newton's works. He doesn't seem to have been particularly interested in the theological implications, um, or indeed, the theological works by William Whiston. Beyond these four works, in their various editions, there are a host of commentaries and textbooks on Newton's ideas. And in this website, I've divided them into two different areas, the Reading Newton, um, which is divided into into physicians, uh, mathematicians, astronomers and theologians. So, of course, they're not mutually exclusive groups. You can be a theologian and astronomer fairly easily. And there's also a teaching Newton section which looks at his textbooks and how Newton was uh, taught at both undergraduate courses and also in the experimental lecturing courses in London. The largest group is, unsurprisingly, um, given Worth's own profession, that of physicians, and Word's assiduously collected texts which sought to apply Newtonian concepts to medicine. Worth's collection of texts on Newtonians bears out the Scottish Newtonian dominance of the interpretation of Newton. You have the Aberdeen chair David Gregor, who I mentioned earlier. He provided one of the first introductions to Newtonian astronomy. His friend and colleague, Archibald Pitcairn, would attempt to interpret Newtonian ideas for physicians, while Scottish mathematicians such as James Stirling and Colin McLaren uh, would provide evidence for how mathematicians read the Principia. Pitcairn in particular, I think, is an important conduit for Worth. Um, or how Worth imbibed Newtonian ideas. Pitcairn had played a leading role role at introducing Newtonianism to the University of Leiden. He had been appointed in 1691 Professor of Medicine there, Um, and although he only stayed for a year and was gone before Worth arrived in the later 1690s, he certainly influenced the people around him. Um, he, in particular, he influenced the English physicians George Cheney and Richard Mead, and the Dutch physician Herman Boerhaave, all of whom studied with him at Leiden. And texts by these physicians, um, as well as other Newtonian physicians such as John Keel, and, uh, or um, John Friend, and James Keel, formed the bedrock of, John, of Edward Wirt's Newtonian interpretation of medicine. The apogee of this approach can be seen in, Robert, uh, in Brian Robinson's treatise of the animal economy, which is likewise in the Worth Library. This was uh, probably given to Worth by Robinson himself, who, like him, had been a trustee of Dr. Stephens Hospital, and it seems likely that Richard Helsham's A Course of Lectures of Natural Philosophy, which was published by Robinson in 1739, i.e. six years after Worth died, was also donated to the Worth Library by Robinson. These and other commentaries by Newton, including a number of textbook introductions for young undergraduates, were all collected by Worth, and as I say, more information is available on the website. Worth's two books by the Newtonian mathematician James Stirling and Connie McLaren are noteworthy in another respect. Stirling's Lineae Tertia Ordinus Newtonianae, which was published at Oxford in 1717, and McLaren's Geometrica Organica at London in 1720. And I think it's important to look at the late date of those publications, because they not only represent Worth's allegiance to Newtonian mathematics, but also draw our attention to the fact that Worth had a genuine interest in mathematics. He didn't just buy the textbooks that he and his cohort would have studied when he was at Merton College in the early 1690s, but he continued to buy mathematical works up to the time of his death. His collection then was very much at what we call the hard-edge end of science and indicates that he was heavily in favour of the mathematisation of science which Newton had advocated. So really we're not talking about coffee table books here but textbooks which only a keen mathematician would have appreciated. This view of Worth as a committed scientist in his own right is further strengthened when we look at his relatively large section of books on scientific instruments. It is clear that Werth was particularly interested in sci- scientific instruments of all kinds. And some of these were investigated in the 2009 Astronomy at the Werth Library Exhibition uh, because he didn't just look at the astronomers or the different aspects of the solar system, but he also looked at the scientific instruments they were using. And probably the most famous one of all is Tycho Brahe, the Danish astronomer Tycho Brahe's seminal work on astronomical instruments, the Astronomicae Insterata Mechanica, and you can see Brahe over on the left, and Brahe, again, on the right, with his large qu- uh, mural qu- um, quadrant. The mural quadrant was perhaps Brahe's most successful and certainly most celebrated instrument. Um, he built it at Uraniborg in 1582, and it played a very important role in his subsequent observations of the declinations of stars. And actually, in, 17, in 1978, I should say, a computer program investigated his observations over the period 1583 to 1590 and they came to the conclusion that they were remarkably accurate, and in particular the m- mural quadrant, I think primarily because it was attached to the wall and therefore was much more stable. Worth also collected what one might call a companion work to Brahe's Astronomia in Sturata Mechanica, the Macina Chalestis of Johannes Avelius. We see here an illustration from it of a very large telescope. Indeed, many of the instruments in Brahe's works are commented on in that of Avelius. The chief difference between them is not so much um, in their function, but in the scope of the two works, because Brahe died a few years before the invention of the telescope, where Hevelius was one of its principal uh, exponents. Worth was clearly interested in any works on the telescope, and he collected Pierre Borel's historical investigation of its development, which accorded the invention to two German-Dutch lens makers, Hans Lippery and Zacharias Janssen. Despite his work on detailing the construction and use of telescopes, Hevelius was still very old school when it came to, method, when it, when it came to his method of observation. The use of telescopic sites um, was part of a debate. On, he had a debate with Robert Hooke on the use of telescopic sites he was against, Robert Hooke was for the idea of putting a telescopic sight onto a, a traditional device. Worth, as a fellow of the Royal Society, would have been aware of this debate and he might also have been interested because William Molyneux also became involved in it. Molyneux was a founding member of the Dublin Philosophical Society. Um, he had written a book, the Schiothericum Telescopium, uh, which was published in Dublin in 1686, which talked about putting telescopic sites on sundials. And that work is, again, like everything else I've been talking about, in the Worth Library. Um, Molyneux was clearly very fond of this production. He said to uh, the Dublin Philosophical Society that it had improved the art of dialing before lame and imperfect, unquote. Well, these are just some of the instruments that Worth was interested in. He certainly didn't limit himself to astronomical instruments, but was equally interested in things like Lune Lewin, uh, hooks and Hook's work on microscopes. To conclude... When we look at Worth's collections, we therefore see that the well-known tension within the Royal Society between the natural historians on one hand who felt neglected by the Newtonian mathematical takeover of the society is not reflected here. Worth was able to combine both an interest in natural history and in Newtonian mathematics and physics. His scientific interests were wide ranging and provide us with an invaluable resource for historians of early modern science in Europe. With this in mind, I'm delighted to announce that the trustees of the Edward Worth Library have decided to institute a Worth Library History of Science Research Award which will commence in 2013, details of which may be found on the Worth Library website. This is intended to draw attention to the wonderful scientific resources which Edward Worth has left us and to encourage research into the history of science more generally. It is, I think, something of which Edward Worth would heartily have approved. Thank you.